Welcome back to Gold Ribbon Conversations, the podcast created to support families fighting childhood cancer in Ireland. Six children, adolescents and young adults are diagnosed with cancer every week in Ireland and the Gold Ribbon, which illuminates precious light, love, courage and compassion, is a symbol of strength and solidarity for each and every one. My name is Sinead O'Moore and it is my privilege to bring you this podcast on behalf of Childhood Cancer Ireland, a charity founded by and led by parents of children with cancer and survivors who know that one of the greatest sources of strength for this fight is conversation. Throughout this podcast, I talk to families impacted by childhood cancer, as well as the experts who care for our children's health, education and happiness. Yes, we talk about the fear and the pain, but we also talk about the hope and the friendship and the community that exists here, because you are not alone. Childhood Cancer Ireland values every single donation while on its mission to help more children, adolescents and young adults survive cancer and thrive as adults and support all those dealing with the long-term effects of illness and trauma. You can help by sharing this podcast and by texting GOLD to 50300 and donating €4 or visit childhoodcancer.ie for more. Here I sit down with Ivan McCarthy as she shares her son Patrick's fight with leukaemia. Patrick was diagnosed with leukaemia a month before his fourth birthday. He's now 10 and in fourth class and he's doing really well. When diagnosed, Ivan was 28 weeks pregnant with his little sister, which challenged her both emotionally and physically. Like many, Ivan went into shock when Patrick was diagnosed. They told her he would be in hospital for a week initially and she thought that was it, not realising he had three years of treatment ahead. We talk about what support looks like, how the staff in St John's Ward become like family, and how the vulnerability, isolation, anxiety and trauma often presents itself after treatment has ended. Patrick is doing so well. He's playing GAA and rugby and he's learning to swim and as a family they are doing their best to give him a normal, happy childhood. But a cancer diagnosis doesn't leave them as a family. There will always be a time before and a time after cancer. Ivan, thank you so much for joining me on this episode of Gold Ribbon Conversations. Um, has you? We were just been chatting beforehand, and you, you, I asked you if you listened, and I asked you if the show in itself was supporting parents who are in this, supporting the community of families fighting childhood cancer. Um, you said something really, really beautiful around how it was like a therapy session for because no matter how a family and friends can support you, there really is nothing like hearing from those who have experienced it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think to talk to other people who've gone through what you have, um, there's just something so reassuring and supportive in that. And um, I, I did go to counselling a couple of times over the the six years um, since Patrick's diagnosis and the end of diagnosis and then after that and while I found it helpful I always felt that you know you know counsellors are great and you know they're brilliant at what they do and I really got something out of it but I just felt that really 
perhaps my counsellor had never come across somebody who had gone through childhood cancer because let's face it, we're quite a small community. And I think the real, for me, I found great solace and just support in talking to other parents, whether that was on the ward. Um, some of the best conversations I had with other parents were in you know, the parents' room on the ward waiting for the kettle to boil, um, you know, just chatting to people in the playroom. And then after that, joining, um, you know, groups on private groups on Facebook, um, you know, in connection with charity, other charities where we just got to, you know, support each other and comfort each other and connect really. So it's been really helpful, you know, and as I said, the podcasts have been brilliant just to hear other people and say, yes, I, I'm not actually mad. I've, I felt that too, you know, and to know that you're not alone, I suppose, is of huge comfort. So tell me about Patrick. Well, um, Patrick, um, when Patrick was diagnosed, it was a month before his fourth birthday. Um, he was a healthy, happy uh, child in my eyes. So robust, in fact, just before his diagnosis that he was playing with friends and in the rough and tumble of it all, he broke a finger. So we had, this was four weeks before his diagnosis. We were due back in Crumlin for um, a follow-up x-ray and a clinic. So um, in the lead up to that, I noticed he was getting more and more tired and he was pale and he had an awful lot of bruising um, on his legs and in other parts of his body, like his, you know, around his hips and his wrists on his arms. And I just felt all of those things combined were just really unusual. Um, but I could never really have imagined, you know, the diagnosis that we were to receive a few weeks later. So um, he got progressively more and more tired and I brought him to our GP. And I just knew by him that he was very solemn and he was examining him. He was saying to me, you know, I really think you're going to Crumlin today for blood. Or, or, sorry, you're going to Crumlin today to the orthopaedic clinic. I think you should go and get some blood done as well. So um, he also said, you know, look at him compared to you. Look how pale he is. He's very pale. And, you know, I really think this is something you need to do straight away. So we went out to the clinic and before we went there, we went and got Patrick's bloods done. Um, and that was at about one o'clock. Um, we were leaving the hospital then at about five. And I was driving down the canal and received a call from my GP. And I knew... I just instantly knew that there was something wrong because he was ringing me. Um, so I pulled in and I took his call. He didn't say very much, but he did say that I needed to go back to the hospital straight away. And really, again, I just, I, I knew obviously there was something really bad. Something had happened. Um, he said, you need to go back and talk to the people in hematology. Um, of course, I wasn't joining the dots here. I was panicked. I went back. Um, I met my partner there in A&E, um, where we met one of the doctors on team and he gave us the news. And really within the space of four or five hours, um, everything changed for us, like our whole lives changed. He told me that Patrick had um, acute lymphoblastic leukemia and he said that um, Patrick would need to be admitted straight away. And I remember saying to him, well, how long does he need to stay in hospital? And he said, you know, seven or eight days if all goes well. 
And in my kind of shock and my madness, I suppose, at the time, I just thought seven or eight days, then it'll be over. That's it. We can go home. We can go back to normal. But what followed was three years of treatment. Um, and we, I suppose, he was so young in a way that helped because he wasn't aware of the news that we'd just been given. Um, he knew we were upset, but he, you know, being the age that he was, he didn't really know what was going on. So he's kind of protected um, from that. But really, as soon as we went up to the ward, then, you know, Patrick's room was ready. His treatment plan was ready. Like the wheels had just turned so mm. quickly. And we really, we just realised that really this was going to be an incredibly difficult um, journey for us. Something that comes up with parents that I've spoken to on this podcast in that moment of having to hand over the control, like that morning you you took your son to the GP, but now, you know, as you said, his, his new room is ready, you exactly. know, a treatment plan is ready. And there's yes. this moment where it's like, I'm his mother, but this is a part of his life that I know that I'm not going to be in control of. Yeah, that's completely it and you know you're signing into like a clinical trial straight away you've barely had a chance to read it but you know it's the right thing to do because it's going to benefit other children and you know that he will have benefit as well from children that went before him so um yeah like I think as well when a team of doctors and nurses meet you at the door of a ward you would just realize just how serious it is I mean I think it took me days to comprehend what was happening um and then as you said it is that loss of control suddenly you're handing over your child and you're trusting all these people to make them better and every time they come into the room to deliver chemotherapy and hand you you know reams of paper with all of the side effects everything that could go wrong again you're trusting that if something does go wrong they can make it right again you know so there is definitely that sense of just having to place all of your trust in the people who are going to make your child better. As you said, your life changed in that moment. And for all of us, even when we are taking a four-year-old who we're concerned about to the GP, we all have other things going on in our life that we assume won't be interrupted by a diagnosis like this. You were pregnant. Yeah, I was 28 weeks pregnant at the time. And um, our doctor told us that, you know, this is actually quite common on St. John's because of the age that most children are diagnosed with leukemia. So very often a mother will be pregnant with, you know, a second or third child. So, yeah, that was really, really difficult. And she was due on the 3rd of November. And I think between this was the 16th of August when he was diagnosed between those dates, I was so worried that you know, when he needed me, that I would have to go off to Hollow Street and deliver her. You know, it was just this awful kind of um, situation where I just did not know what was going to happen. But she arrived on her due date. Um, and yeah, it was, it all worked out really well. But there was an off, I was just so anxious that, you know, I would have to leave him in a hurry. And there was an awful sense of, you know, him needing me. And then when the baby arrived, she would need me. 
and I was kind of torn between both of those things. I couldn't stay in the hospital um, very often. I stayed one night, I think, um, because, you know, I couldn't sleep on the couch. It was too uncomfortable. Um, but, yeah, I had to just let Fergus, my partner, take over and stay in there with them at night uh, while I was there during the day. So we we worked things out, you know. So to be so consumed now by wanting to protect Patrick, did it interrupt how you felt about pregnancy, how you felt about this impending birth and, you know, in that postpartum phase kind of how to yeah. just relax into this newborn bubble, which of course sure, can't, there, can't exist. There was a lot of handing her over to my parents or my sisters um, when we had to go to the hospital. Um, and I suppose as well, I it took me um, a long time to kind of get used to having another little person to look after because I was so consumed by what was going on with Patrick and I felt that he really needed me. So I feel like I missed out on a lot of that lovely time, that very difficult time, as we all know, when we just have a baby. But it's also, as you said, this is lovely bubble. When you bring your baby home, you're a bit more confident with your second baby and it's not such a big deal. But she was such a good baby. Like she she slept for me through the night at five weeks, which was just like some sort of a miracle. Wow. Um, <laughs> and she was just always smiling. And she was just it was such a lovely thing for our whole family, because amidst all this sadness and everything that was going on with Patrick, we had this beautiful little smiling girl who just lit up everybody's lives and it was just a wonderful it turned out to be something really wonderful um and I'd lie if I if I said I wasn't dreading trying to balance both but it actually turned out to be okay so we were lucky in that respect a little injection of positivity yeah for sure for sure how did Patrick respond to treatment um Patrick did really well um it was pretty straightforward for him um he did get chickenpox and he got the flu during his treatment, both of which can be really, really serious in immunocompromised children. But, you know, he went through some really difficult times when he was during the first eight months of treatment when, you know, you're just being bombarded by chemotherapy. Um, I found the hair loss really difficult. Um, it was such it was just so I remember saying to our nurse um, on the ward, is he going to lose, lose his hair? It was such a ridiculous question because anyone who goes through chemotherapy loses their hair. But for me, um, it was just such a kind of symbol. Like when he was he was so sick and I think it was just to other people looking at him, he looked even sicker and it just made him more vulnerable. I think, you know, when you see a child like that he was so pale he'd no hair and um it was just a reminder all the time of how ill he actually was um so I found that really difficult and that happened a couple of times during his treatment but um we were very fortunate after the eight months he was able to go back to um crash and his preschool he managed to just finish the end of his preschool year and he went to school then in September like our doctor had told us he would he had said to us you know I'll get him to school and true to his word Patrick started school the following September so 
you know, wasn't all plain sailing, but I think our journey was pretty straightforward in comparison to what other people have gone through on the board, you know, but it is a very long um, journey. It's three years for boys. I think it's two years for girls. And when you're in it, it just seems never ending. I mean, the kids are just incredible because they just get on with things. You know, he just every day, he'd be, you know, just going to school, he'd be cycling down to school, but then in the evenings, he'd be coming home, taking chemotherapy. He might have to get bloods done on a Monday morning before school. So there's nothing normal about it, but you're trying to be, to carry on as normally as you can um, in that situation. He's the most determined person I've ever met. So yeah. well, maybe anyone... it does. Maybe somewhere in their subconscious, they yeah. know they have to fight for their life. Oh, completely. I think so, you know. And with the little ones as well, like with him, he just got so used to talking to adults the whole time yeah. that now he's brilliant with adults. Everywhere yeah. he goes, he can chat chat away you know we spent a year on the ward there just chatting to doctors and nurses instead of playing with other kids which was sad but you know if there is an advantage to it is he's well able to converse with anyone you know at this stage so like he's lived life in ways that most adults haven't yeah you know so full of wisdom yeah (laughs) too much sometimes (laughs) And he was in a good place when he started school. Yes, he was great when he started. Um, And he did. There were days, obviously, where he didn't have energy. Um, He might be nauseous or vomiting from treatment and he'd have to stay at home with me. But by and large, he was able to go in um, and have fun and have a normal childhood again with the rest of the children in his class. Um, But, you know, we're always... It was never far from our minds. We were always worried. I mean, he had his port in his chest, his Freddy, as the kids call it on the ward. And that was always a worry that, you know, when he'd be playing out in the yard, that, you know, somebody might pull it. Or there was just always worries, you know, there was worries about infection when, you know, he was neutropenic. Um, but I think the advice from Crumlin always was when they're well enough to go to school, send them in because you know, interacting with their peers and having a normal childhood is more important than anything else. So just go with it and don't be too fearful. So we tried as much as we could for him to just, you know, have as normal a time as he could. Childhood Cancer Ireland is a charity founded by parents and survivors who have walked this path and are now dedicating their time to supporting you. They know what it's like to feel isolated, confused, scared and alone, and they are here to listen and to provide peer-to-peer support to parents and adult members of children, adolescents and young adults with cancer. They know what they needed, and they know how valuable it is to connect with someone who shares what you are feeling, thinking and fighting. You can access essential information about this peer-to-peer support on the website childhoodcancer.ie. To help us to continue our services, please text GOLD to 50300 and donate €4 Euro, or visit childhoodcancer.ie for more. Something that has come up when I'm speaking with parents on this podcast is that when they are part of the hospital system, while intense 
And as we spoke about, you, you know, to do that control handing over, you do fall into a comfort zone because it's so scheduled. It's, you know, it's it's so in motion and there's always something next. Relentless, but somehow you're on this treadmill now. And that actually when it ends or slows down or when you're supposed to be able to kind of come back to normality, that that's when the weight of, of the last few years kind of hits where your, your system allows yourself to reflect and be like, what just happened? And for many, that's the time with which the fighter maybe kind of is tired and the emotion comes to the surface. Did you experience that kind of situation? Yeah, I definitely did. And I think we both did. And there was a great sense of security when we were in the system. Um, You'd be getting a call from one of the nurses every week with blood results. In fact, you're having blood tests done every week. So you knew how stable things were or not, as the case may be. Um, And really, when you finish treatment, it's like the rug is pulled from under you. It's it's wonderful to be finished treatment. It's wonderful to get through that. you know, we're incredibly lucky that we did get through it all. But um, there's an awful sense of being, feeling isolated and being on your own when it's all over. And I think when you're busy and you're with hospital appointments and you're, you know, you have a list of medications that you have to give, you're changing dressings, you're doing bloods, you're doing everything. You don't have time to think about really what's going on. And I think it just hits you like a ton of bricks when it's all over. And that's certainly the case with us. Um, He finished in October 2019. And five months later, you know, the pandemic had arrived and we were in lockdown. So that was incredibly difficult because I always imagined that, you know, things would just return to normal when it was all over. And I had, you know, the end in sight. and I thought, oh, God, when this ends, I'm going to throw a big party and invite everybody who helped us and everyone who supported us. And that was the last thing I felt like doing because I just felt so deflated. Um, there was a real, uh, just a dawning a sense of realisa- a realisation of what had happened. And I think it's then really that parents and children need the support. And unfortunately, it's just, it's not really there like the hospital you know they can only do so much they're very busy they do an incredible job but those supports really aren't in place um so i think reaching out to charities like childhood cancer ireland who provide peer support is a really um valuable and important thing to do at that stage because as i said before there's really nothing like talking to people who have been through what you have and i think if that's available it's, you know, it's really something very valuable for you to do. When you say those supports just aren't there, what does that look like? What, what, what is needed? Is it, is it just the opportunity to talk? Yeah, I think, um, you know, just more, we need more of a focus on the mental health side of things. I mean, the whole family needs to be supported. Siblings, um, mm-hmm. it has a huge impact on them. Now, Evie was too young for it to have affected her, but I know from meeting other people on the board how difficult it is when your siblings are aware of what's going on and how they can miss their parents when they have to, you know, 
just get up in the middle of the night and run to the local hospital or drive to Crumlin um, and just how their lives come to a standstill as well. Their childhood is paused while the, you know, ill sibling is being looked after. Um, so I just think really if going forward we could change that um, within the hospital system, um, we shouldn't have to rely on volunteers and you know charities to give us that support i think more funding should be available and um, to give people that support from day one and after they finish treatment what have the long-term impacts been on patrick you know i know um, he was too young to maybe inquire or understand the gravity of the situation at the time but it's am i right six years on it's six years on yeah he I suppose, as you said, he was too young to grasp what was going on. Mm. And throughout the whole time, we never said you have cancer because that's meaningless to a four year old. And for a long time, we couldn't even say those words ourselves in connection with him. It was just too difficult to say it out loud, like that he had cancer. It took me a long time to be able to say that. Um, I think he was very anxious um, after treatment. He wouldn't, he'd want to be in the same room as us all the time. And he always wanted to be around us. And he was so used, I suppose, to having us with him in hospital. And, you know, we were living a quite extraordinary life. Like it's not like other children. Um, so I feel, yeah, he, he has experienced some anxiety, um, in relation to I, his experience. I might even go so far as to say that he had some PTSD um, after all of it, as I think we did too. And while, you know, you're very grateful and you know how lucky you are to have got through it, um, we never stop appreciating that fact. It really changes your life. Um, you're not the same person you were when you, you walked in there. Um, you know, your confidence goes. It's very difficult to find a sense of normality again um, and I don't think you ever will like what what is normal I don't know anymore um, I'll always worry about him I'll worry about relapse um, I'll worry about late effects so it is it really is life-changing for everyone but I think he will just get on with his life he's very happy now he's healthy thank god he is enjoying a very full life and he's playing sport which is wonderful. Um, but I would say that the parents are kind of left, you know, wondering for the rest of their days if they'll ever feel like they did before all of this happened. Because it really is. It's like a nuclear bomb going off in your life. It just changes. It changes everything, you know. And even at a practical level in terms of like your your ability to focus on work, your ability to focus on, uh, I recorded last season uh, and we just spoke about even just having to fill out the forms, having to engage your brain to do tasks, like life admin just feels so incredibly beyond what you're, you have capacity for. Like you're just consumed by having to just focus on this is happening. How is this happening? Why is this happening? 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, you know, I remember um, Fergus in the hospital and he said, you know, while he was supposed to be working, he'd be just sitting there Googling, you know, articles about childhood leukemia. That's all he could think about. Um, and thankfully, he's self-employed, so he's doing that on his own time. But um, yeah, it's incredibly difficult. I didn't go back to work. I took carer's leave. And I only went back to work in um, January of 2020 on a part-time basis. So um, while all of that was going on, like I needed to just get Patrick over the line. I needed just to see it through. Um, work was just something I could not have, you know, handled. And of course, there's a financial burden then. That's another worry when only one person is working. And the other has to take a step back. Um, I don't know how anyone manages to go back full time. But I think if you can do that and it's a, a great distraction for you, I think, you know, that's a wonderful thing. But personally, I just, it was so all encompassing. I was just so consumed by it all that that's all I could focus on at the time. When you start to get some positive news and when you start to get results, do you do you respond in the way that you expect you will when that yeah, starts happening? I think so. And um, I think it was always, you know, really brilliant when we were moving forward. And as I said, you could see light at the end of the tunnel and you were being told, you know, his prognosis is very good here. You know, he's there were very few complications. There were a few bumps in the road, but it was all very straightforward for us um so yes I think you do but there's always I suppose part of you that wonders you know like every time I see a bruise on his leg or you know every time he's exceptionally tired or you know if he has like what I would consider now a minor illness like tonsillitis which would have been huge to me back before all of this happened so you always wonder oh god is this the start of is it happening again? And even with my little girl, you know, when she is sick or she's pale, I always think, is this, is this leukemia? Like, is it happening all over again? And I think, unfortunately, that's just the way it is, you know, and I would hope that in time, you know, I won't feel like that. But I think, sadly, that's just part of part all of it. this, you know. Is there anything that you have to do to is there is there supports around you that you know okay so if you feel like Evie is looking particularly pale or if you start to see a bruise is there a support there that says okay this has happened before we'll we will check this out for you straight away yeah well I suppose um you know you're very much in the hands of your GP at the end of all of this um and it's strange because for three years you have no contact with your GP in terms of your child so all of their care is covered in Crumlin. So then you're going back to this doctor who has no relationship with your child, um, who may not have any experience of childhood cancer, may not have seen a case of childhood cancer in their working life. So you're relying on them. Thankfully, we have a very good doctor and I suppose you're relying on them then. And they've been very good with me. The times I have had a little wobble about either of them they've always been great and we have you know gone and got bloods done and been reassured um I'd also 
you know, chat with other parents um, online um, on an end of treatment forum um, if I had any worries. And that's always reassuring as well, you know, just to know that there are other people there. The expectation that end of treatment means, as you said, back to normal, whatever back to normal even is. It's often the time of great actually vulnerability and anxiety. And whilst it's the end of the road that you've been fighting for and focused on getting to and arriving to, yeah, I can see how this void kind of opens up and allows too many thoughts that you probably have been blocking out to kind of come to the surface. Totally. And you almost miss all of the staff, all of the nurses that you met, met along the way, you know, the healthcare assistants, the cleaners, everyone in that on that ward, they're just so brilliant. Like it's such a massive team effort and they become like your family um, when you're there, you're in and out of there for three years and you kind of, you miss their support. You miss, I suppose, the fact that they, they also know what you and all the other parents are going through. and. Um, yeah, you, you almost become institutionalized. Like you're there, you know, it's but so much part of your life that when it ends then and you're kind of cast adrift, you wonder, oh God, how am I going to do all of this on my own? And and as I said before, it is a wonderful thing to have finished. Like, don't get me wrong, we are incredibly grateful that he is well, that things turned out well for us. Um and we're always aware of other parents that we met along the way who lost children and that's never far from your mind either I mean that's something that really sticks with you um the people you meet on the ward you know the stories that you hear it's something that's with you forever and you never forget those people so they are always on my mind as well while we worry as parents we can also live naive away from the realities that some live through. I think an experience of childhood cancer, and as you said, witnessing the pain and the grief and the challenge that people are experiencing on wards like St. John's and, and others, depending on the illness, um, wakes you up to the trauma that can, that can arrive into families' lives. And yeah, that that I'm sure is extremely hard to let go um, and to kind of trust in life again. Trust that you're born and you, you know, you go to school and you work hard and then you have a family and you have a wonderful life. And then ultimately, you know, illness or, or grief will occur later on. That's not always how it, how it looks. And it's a it's a hard reality to 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 start to think about. You know, it's yeah. quite it's quite nice living in this naivety. <laughs> yeah, it is. And I think you take a lot for granted um, mm. when you don't have a seriously ill child. Um, I know I certainly did. And I certainly will never take anything for granted again. I mean, if there's any positives from the experience, it is meeting all of these wonderful people who not only work in the medical profession, but it's people who give up their time, volunteers who do wonderful things like the blood bikes, um, people in Childhood Cancer Ireland, Barrettstown, the people who come into the hospital, the clown doctors, um, 
people who come in and entertain the children, take your mind off things, uh, who are just there for support. You know, people like Apiens Pink Tie, people who do practical things for you while you're there, the play therapists on the ward. You know, you, you see so much goodness in people. And I mean, I'd never have met any of those people if this hadn't happened. I know that probably sounds funny. I never would have wished for this to happen. Mm. But once you're in that community, you know, it's a wonderful community of people and parents and children and all the other people who help us to get through, you know, what we have to get through. Which I'm sure was a motivator for you in agreeing to come on this podcast, because it's all those little ways that we can give back, you know, that that even by sharing your story, you're giving somebody that relief. If yeah, they're experiencing that loneliness and that, you know, that anxiety and just needing to hear, you know, somebody talk about what it is that they are going through in a really personal way that only if only when you've gone through it, can you really understand it? Yeah, it's really nice to know that you're not alone in what you're going through and that the things that you're thinking of, you know, you're not you're not mad. Um, you know, it's not unusual to feel isolated or very down or completely traumatized when it's all over. Like, don't I would say to anyone listening, don't expect too much of yourself. Don't expect to suddenly feel on top of the world when mm. it ends but you know it does get better and it's a cliche but time is a great healer and I think as we put more distance between what happened um, I'm definitely starting to feel so much better and it's also a wonderful thing to engage with all of the organisations that help people in our position um, if you can to engage with other parents I know it's been really difficult for people who were having treatment during the pandemic mm -hmm. because a lot of those supports were, you know, the face-to-face -face supports and even something, you know, so so small as meeting somebody in the playroom. Those things couldn't happen during those years. Um, I believe things are slowly coming back now, but, you know, you're not alone and we are a small community but we're a great community of people and there's always somebody that you can talk to, like get on to Childhood Cancer Ireland and peer support is a wonderful thing. You know, just even to talk at somebody, <laughs> there's somebody there listening, you know, and I think that's really important. And there are people that, you know, it's been six years now since the diagnosis. Um, it's something that doesn't leave. So even if you're in it right now, if you're new to the situation right now, you know, you've had six years since that diagnosis. It's been a long road, but you've learned so much along the way. And that's a valuable asset to hand back. So it's not just connecting with the people that are right there experiencing, you know, the news and the treatment. It's having this kind of alumni of, of parents who have walked this path Um you know, and, and who can give hope as well, who can who can offer a back hope to say, look, he's doing well, you know, he's he's playing sport, he's in school, he's living a childhood. That, even from a mental resilience point of view, I'm sure is massively beneficial. 
Oh, absolutely. And I think it's important to note as well when a child does come through all of this and they're doing well, when they're as young as, as Patrick, they will have very few memories of St. John's and what happened. Like, I think we're very fortunate in that way. Um, and yes, you can go on to live a really happy life. You can pick up where you left off. Um, and, you know, your child can get back to normal in, in, in a lot of cases. Um, and it's great to see him thriving now and enjoying himself. And I suppose that helps me kind of get over myself sometimes when mm. I'm feeling, you know, worried or anxious. I just look at the way he is grasping life and, you know, just living life. And I think, okay, enjoy him and don't be worrying about what might happen again. It may never happen. You know, stop catastrophizing everything. <laughs> enjoy him. Enjoy Evie, his little sister, and just get on with things. Because life is short and it's a bit, it's a major cliche, but we all know that things mm -hmm. can change so quickly in your life, you know. Enjoy today. Focus on today. If today is a good day and if today is a rough day, Start looking for the little things that can give you hope, can make you feel good. Um, and maybe that is just that your child, regardless of what's going on, is smiling, is joking, is laughing, is oblivious. Um, thank you so much for sharing your story. Um, I know it's often hard to revisit. Um, any guest that comes on, it um it kind of forces them to relive a part of their lives that they don't necessarily always want to think about. But I've always remarked that when they do talk about it, it, it soothes them one more time, one more time, every time they talk, just letting it out. And those that hear it are so grateful because it is something that is truly needed in the absence of any formal support. There is these initiatives, there is this podcast, there is the peer support. Um, and yeah, don't, don't hold it in and don't go through it alone. Sharing your story has enabled somebody listening to not go through it alone. And I really, really, really want to thank you for that. Thanks, Sinead. Thank you for listening to this Gold Ribbon Conversation. There are more Gold Ribbon stories written by those fighting childhood cancer on our website, childhoodcancer.ie, and you'll find a link in our show notes. If you can, we would love you to share this podcast across social media using hashtag Gold Ribbon Conversations as it can help more families to discover this show. This podcast was produced by The Brand Story for Childhood Cancer Ireland, hosted by Sinead O'Moore and Sound Production by Alan Breslin.